Straight from the Mayor's Mouth, with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council. Hello and welcome to another edition of Straight from the Mayor's Mouth. Unfortunately, our regular host, Mark Barnes, is unavailable this week, so I'm going to give you a solo version of Straight from the Mayor's Mouth. Feel free to give me any feedback that you might want. Before I start, though, it's interesting. I've had a few chats to people during the week about how busy Dubbo is at the moment. And what's fascinating about that is that normally people expect Christmas time to be busy, for example. They might expect Easter or certain holidays to be busy. But I've had a couple of people this week comment to me that Dubbo just seems to be getting busier all the time, which is fantastic, but it does present some other problems which we might talk about as we go through the show today. It is a good sign from an economic point of view. It's a good sign from the fact that there's action and there's things happening, but it does present some challenges rather than issues as I talk about them. The first one I talk about this week, the first topic, is a, a visit from the Honourable Ben Franklin, MLC, President of the Legislative Council of New South Wales. He was in Dubbo this week. Now, I met with Ben just to give him an update on what's happening in Dubbo. He's got a particular interest in Dubbo. He's done a few things with Dubbo in the past and wanted to know what was happening. And so it was a great chance to talk to Ben about a whole range of things from a New South Wales government perspective. The focus there was probably the renewable energy zone and talking about some of those things, which I will talk about a little bit more as we go through the episode. But it was also good to give Ben an update on some projects that he'd previously provided funding for. He was in Dubbo in August last year and he made two announcements when he was in, in Dubbo. At that time, he was the Minister for Tourism, he was a Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, he's a Minister for Regional Youth, and the Minister for the Arts. So a fairly big portfolio, a range of portfolios there for Ben. And so when he was in Dubbo last year, in August, he made two announcements, which were fantastic announcements. He provided a million dollars in funding for new LED lights at the Dubbo Regional Theatre and Convention Centre. And it was good to give him an update on that particular project because we recently launched those and showed those off to the public. So it was good to give an update and show how they had made a difference already and were going to continue to make a difference. So he's pretty happy with that funding he provided. When he was in Dubbo in August last year, he also announced an additional $5 million in funding for the Radri Cultural Tourism Centre. Now, he's very keen to hear about that one and to see how that had progressed. Unfortunately, we haven't started turning sods yet. We're still working out the finances of that one after the architects finished the plan and we got some pricing for that. It just came in much more than we'd actually budgeted for, much more than the architects had been given the budget for. So we've got to keep working on some additional funding revenues for that. But Ben was keen to hear about that process. But again, good to see Ben in Dubbo, good to see Ben coming back and also interested in some of those projects that he'd been a part of providing funding for. Also, during the week, I was up at St. John's College, the school that Mark Barnes teaches at, coincidentally, and there was a group of Year 10 students there for a workshop. The workshop was a fairly long-titled Be Kind to the Environment World Ocean Day 30 by 30 Goals workshop. This was the first such workshop held anywhere in the state, and the plan is to hold many more of these next year. But the concept here was to focus on the 3030 goal. Now, the 3030 goal is a global community effort to conserve 30% of terrestrial and marine habitat by the year 2030. 
Now, the Youth Ocean Carnival founder was Timothy Johnson. He's a Mossman-based contemporary artist, and he's been very keen to make some of these things happen. At the event was also Sam Fricker, who's an Olympic diver, and he's got a huge following on TikTok. And also Cal Glansnig. He's a first-grade water polo player with the Cronulla Sharks, and he's also the founder of Plastic Free Cronulla. So they all spoke at the workshop. I had the honour of going along and talking about Dubbo and some of the focus that we've got on the environment and our net zero framework. So just to talk a little bit about what's happening at a local council level. One of the things that was fascinating, though, was some people commented to me and said, well, a world ocean workshop, the ocean's not exactly on our doorstep. We've got a fair distance to get to the ocean. Why would you have a workshop about being kind to the ocean in and be kind of the environment to be fair was the actual workshop but be kind of focused on the ocean when you're in Dubbo a long way away and the point that the organisers wanted to make is that we are all interconnected there are lots of things that we do in one part of the world that can affect things in other parts of the world and my Merrill memo this week I did talk a little bit about exactly this and it's and of course there's that famous quote from Edward Lorenz the meteorologist and mathematician and he said does the flap of a butterfly's wings in Brazil set off a tornado in Texas? Now, he didn't mean it as a literal butterfly, but he was trying to explain how small changes in a nonlinear system can result in large changes elsewhere. And of course, weather systems are extremely complex, maybe a bit chaotic sometimes. So he was making the point that long-term weather prediction is incredibly difficult because there are so many factors that can influence that. But Again, when you start to talk to children at a school here in Dubbo, how are they impacting the ocean and how are they impacting the environment in general? And of course, you've got things and some of the messaging from the day was things like just reducing the use of plastic bags and plastic bottles. Uh, in, in Dubbo, I talked about the three bins we've got in Dubbo. So if we can reduce the amount of waste that goes to landfill, that can be good for the overall environment. I did roll out a quote that I've used in other examples before and it's a quote that I really like from Margaret Mead and she said never doubt that a small group of thoughtful committed citizens can change the world indeed it's the only thing that ever has and I think that was particularly relevant for that particular workshop because the children in that workshop might have thought, well, does it really matter if I get a plastic bag when I go to the supermarket? Does it really matter if I get a plastic bottle when I have a drink of water? And what do I do with it afterwards? I'll just throw it in landfill, that'll be okay. My one plastic bottle won't make a difference. But here's the crucial part that was emphasised at the conference and certainly at the workshop, but certainly I believe as well. The crucial part is that if everyone took the attitude that my little one action, my little one change won't make a difference, then no change will happen. But if everyone in the world said, my little one change can make a difference, and then everyone made that difference, then suddenly you've got a whole world make a change. So good to see that launched here in Dubbo. Next year, a number of schools will have a similar workshop. And I think the school really appreciated being part of that whole pilot process. Now, Angel Flight is an organisation that does some wonderful work for people, a lot of families across the nation, across New South Wales that I'm certainly more aware of. 
And they do emergency flights, sorry, they do non-emergency flights and transfers for people that live remotely so they can access specialist medical treatments. Now, it's pretty tough if you live in a regional location and don't have access to all the medical facilities you might need. In particular, if you've got a treatment where you've got to go and have regular treatments, and cancer is obviously the, the most obvious one of those, where you've got to continue to have some sort of ongoing treatment. Now, if you don't have that ability to have that treatment in a regional location, and I'm talking here if you might be located in Burke or Bawana or Cobar, or even if you're located in Dubbo and you don't have access to all treatments there, then getting easy access to those treatments is tough. And if you can only get those in Sydney, well, it's a long drive down and back to Sydney. Often there are children involved. That's where Angel Flight really focuses on some of its services. And so that's a tough gig to put someone in a vehicle, go down to Sydney and back. But think about burns treatments, for example. It can't be pleasant having burns treatment redressed and then getting in a car and driving back for many hours. And then flights, if you choose to fly down, which is obviously more convenient, it gets expensive when you're starting to fly down to Sydney, for example, on a regular basis. Or a combination, you might live in Burke and you've got to drive to Dubbo and then fly to Sydney, for example. So Angel Flight has this model where they get volunteers, so pilots, that volunteer their time and they'll volunteer the use of their plane as well. And typically all Angel Flight does with its fundraising is cover the fuel costs because that can be expensive, obviously, for someone volunteering their time and their plane. And they will fly these people down to have their treatments and then fly them back. It's a wonderful service provided by extremely generous people. And typically these people love flying and love helping people, but it still takes a fair bit of time out of their life because they've got to fly them there. They've got to wait until the treatment finishes, depending how long that treatment might be, and then fly them back. Now, I was out at the airport this week to help them with a raffle they've got, and that raffle has got quite an interesting prize as first prize. It's got a Robinson R44 Raven 2 helicopter. So if you've always wanted to own a helicopter, then I'd say buy a raffle ticket in the latest Angel Flight uh, raffle. Now, you might think, well, what's the good of parking a helicopter in my backyard? I don't know how to fly it. It's going to cost me to run it. Well, the prize comes with 12 months of space in a hangar, comes with maintenance for 12 months, comes with the insurance expenses for all the 12 months. It comes with $70,000 worth of pilot training, comes with $100,000 worth of fuel. So it gives you the helicopter and everything you need, at least for the first 12 months. Now, after that 12 months, you might say, well, it's too expensive. I can't afford to keep this. But for the first 12 months, it might be interesting. And learning how to fly a helicopter sounds interesting as well. So I think Angel Flight do do some wonderful work. And if you feel that way inclined, go and search Angel Flight on the internet and see if you can buy a raffle ticket with them. And this week I also had my regular meeting with the Dubbo Business Chamber. And this is something that I used to do last time I was mayor and I've reinitiated this time. I think the Dubbo Business Chamber does an excellent job in Dubbo, a very progressive chamber, and certainly businesses in Dubbo are very supportive of our chamber, and we've got a great business community as well. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a, another segment later on in this show. But I think it's important to keep those open lines of communication, or those lines of communication open with the chamber, and just see how you can work together. You never know what you can do, you never know what things might happen. One of the issues we discussed at this particular meeting was an idea of 
security guards paid for by someone, and I'll get to that in a moment, that can be around the CBD. And one of the chamber members saw this happen over in Fremantle, for example. Now, Fremantle is a much larger location, much larger city than Dubbo is. But in Fremantle, this is exactly what they do. They do. They actually have security guards who roam the streets and just look for some activity that isn't very nice in the city and encourage that activity to change. Now, of course, security guards haven't got the same powers as police, but if they need to, they might try and detain people and wait for police to come along. New South Wales might be a little bit different, but just on the back of that discussion, we said that we investigate that further from a council perspective and the chamber said that if we could go ahead with something like this, it might be something where the chamber and council can get together to see how we might fund it through the business community, maybe something where we ask the shops throughout the CBD to make a small contribution. Now, we're a long way away from that yet. There's a fair bit of investigation to go yet. But again, out of these conversations, out of these meetings, these regular discussions, you don't really know exactly what will happen. But it's worthwhile, definitely worthwhile, having those discussions in the first place and keeping those communications open. Uh, again, I think they do a wonderful job. Let's see how we can work together to keep progressing Dubbo. It's not unusual to get phone calls from various outlets, various media outlets across the state, sometimes across the nation, with different topics that people want to talk about related to Dubbo. And I had a very interesting one this week from a journalist from AAP, and they want to talk about the New South Wales government initiative or incentives they've got in place to try and have some people or teachers in rural areas. Now, there's two different programs, and I don't know all the exact details of those programs. I'm vaguely aware of them, and I'll talk about both of those different programs. The first one is the Rural Teacher Incentive. So they're giving incentives. They're giving incentives to the value of $20,000 to $30,000, depending on the remoteness of the school, if you're a teacher that moves to one of these rural locations. And so the journal wanted to know about this idea, this incentive idea, and another one I'll talk about in a moment, and what we thought that might do for rural teachers. Now, it's interesting. It seems like we've got some great teachers here in Dubbo at the moment, and they're sitting there working away, doing their job for the amount of money they're paid, probably not enough money they're paid, but working away, doing that. And many teachers I know are focused more on the education and the passion, more so than counting the dollars each week they get paid. If I'm a teacher in Sydney and I decide that I want to move to Dubbo, for example, and I don't know the exact fund for Dubbo, but let's say it's $25,000, then I get paid $25,000 to move to Dubbo to teach in Dubbo, and you have to stay for a year. I just don't know that that's the right approach to take. Attracting someone who then gets an extra $25,000 that year teaching beside someone who's paid their same wage, it seems like there's no reward for people that are teaching in Dubbo in the first place or in a regional remote location. It seems a little bit unfair that someone gets attracted in and gets paid that extra money. And I suppose the crucial thing there, I would say, would be if there is a teacher shortage, whether it be a regional teacher shortage or a teacher shortage overall, then it would be better to look at what's causing that teacher shortage. Now, I've heard from various teachers about why there is a lack of teachers coming through the system, why there might be a shortage of teachers. And again, I won't venture forth those ideas here. That's not really in my area of expertise. But a one-off payment to move once for a year, I'm not convinced that will make a long-term change. It puts a band-aid on things in the short term, 
But after a year, that person can go back to Sydney. They've taken a bit of extra money out of the system, but it hasn't addressed the root cause. Moving to a new community for a year, again, I don't think is enough to make you say, well, I'm going to really uproot my family or change my life and actually move out there for a year. You might move out for a year and then move back. So I'm not convinced that's a great idea. Again, look at the root causes of the teacher shortage problem. Now, the other one focuses specifically just a few areas. Western Sydney, Dubbo, Queanbeyan and the Murray region uh, have got a different incentive. Now, this incentive is only open to 75 applicants and this is about education. And there are three different pathways. And again, I'm not an expert on exactly the mechanics of this, but if it applies to you, go and have a look at it. You've got an undergraduate pathway with a $30,000 training allowance over four years. There's a postgraduate pathway with $30,000 training allowance over two years. And you've also got the industry experience pathway with a $30,000 training allowance over two years and then a retention incentive of up to $30,000 paid over the first three years of teaching in one of those locations I just mentioned. So again, I'm not sure whether that means there are three different $30,000 offerings or $30,000 for two and $60,000 for the other. But this program seems to make a bit more sense. This is about educating and getting people some help with their education. So if I've just finished my HSC and I'm looking at a range of careers, I'm considering teaching, or maybe I'm looking at a range of careers and I can't afford to go to university, but I've got $30,000 for one of those levels, one of those areas, and it's something that I have got a passion or an interest in, then that might be enough to get me or allow me to go to university rather than not actually take that option. I'd be disappointed if it brought people into the industry that really didn't have a passion, didn't have an interest in that industry, but I would hope that you wouldn't go through all of that education, go through the years of education to become a teacher if you didn't have some passion for it. And you do see different organisations offer scholarships, and this is a little bit what this sounds like, to get people into their particular industry, help them financially with that. So again, it's a bit better, I think, than just the one-off payment to move. You've got a time frame you've got to keep teaching for. It sounds like it's probably about three years you've got to keep teaching for. So you're not going to do all of that, commit to education, and then multiple years after that, unless you've got some sort of passion for that in the first place. And that sounds like more a long-term solution to get more people into the teaching industry in general. Now, at our last committee meetings, one of the items or topics that came up in those committee meetings was the idea of the Western Sydney Wanderers bringing out an A-League women competition match to Dubbo. And a few other things wrapped around that, having a development officer in Dubbo, having some workshops in schools, a whole range of things. Now, at the committee meetings, and we've talked about it many times in the past, Committee meetings don't make council resolutions. They make recommendations to council and the full meeting of council is coming up in this coming week. At that committee meeting, though, the recommendation was not to pay out a large sum of money to the Wanderers, but to look at other ways we might be able to work with them. Now, the actual contents of that discussion, they were in a confidential paper, so I can't talk about the exact details of that conversation, but I can say that it was a large sum of money that they had discussed and asked for. And we've talked about it before. We know that the NRL and South Sydney came, and this is public information. They 
were paid $350,000 for each of the two matches they played in Dubbo. And that's a standard sort of amount that varies a little bit amongst clubs. But when you see a club come along and play in a regional area to keep developing the game, and whatever club that might be, you see play in regional areas, whether it's Manly Ringer playing in Mudgee, or whether it's the Penrith Panthers playing in Bathurst, whatever, whenever you see those clubs playing out in regional locations, they are paid a large sum of money. And the Western Sydney Wanderers came along and had a similar approach. And again, I can't talk about the exact amount, but councillors talked about that at our committee meetings and just thought that the amount of money being asked for to help develop the game of soccer was unfair on the ratepayers of Dubbo to pay that amount. I had a discussion with the CEO from the Western Sydney Wanderers during the week just to talk about that concept a little bit further because I'd love to see an A-League women competition match in Dubbo. I think that would be absolutely fantastic. And again, how do we make that happen without having to pay out a large amount of money? And so I went through and explained the position of councillors, the discussion that occurred. Again, it was a confidential discussion, so I couldn't say a lot of details, but just basically said we need to not have such a large sum of money. We have some other great events that we get in Dubbo, touch football competitions, bowls competitions. We, we get these great events with lots of people that come to Dubbo for extended periods of time and we're not having to pay out large sums of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars, for example, to get those events. We seem to be able to attract those events based on a whole range of other things. So it was a good discussion. I don't know what will come out of that discussion, but I did say we've got our council meeting Thursday this week. I'd love to have the CEO come back with something that was a bit more attractive in terms of a way to get a match here in Dubbo without having to pay out that large sum of money. That'll go through council on Thursday. I'm sure I'll talk about it next week in terms of what the outcome of that was. I'm hopeful, though, that the CEO can see my point about charging ratepayers of Dubbo being unfair and see what we might be able to do to bring that match out to Dubbo. Stewart Town is one of the smaller locations in the Dubbo Regional Council LGA. But I often talk about Stewart Town as a location, or a town technically, that is absolutely got a lot of spirit behind it. And there's not many places that are a smaller Stewart Town that have two different organisations that are focused on progressing the town as far as they possibly can. One of those two is the Stewart Town Advancement Association. Now, they've teamed up with Arana Arts, and I do remember when I first got back on a council, early 2022, I had a long conversation with Tom Williamson, and they have got the old railway hotel building, a historic building built in 1880, and they were keen to do this thing called an arts residency. They'd tried to do it previously. They hadn't really had much success doing that. They'd been a bit frustrated with it all, and they went through and explained to me the concept of what they wanted to do, and... I didn't remember the exact conversation, but Tom reminded me of it during the week where apparently I said, well, all of that sounds positive. Let's make it happen. Now, it's easy to say that. You've got a few technical processes to go through, but we went through those with the Stuart Town Advancement Association and Arana Arts, who are very much a part of this, and we made it happen. Now, that means they've got some ability to have artists come into that particular building for a period of time. Now, what I went along to during the week was the final part of this. And so what happens is you have artists who come along and stay at this railway hotel building. Three artists in this case, Tina Petch, Danya Dukan, my apologies if that was not pronounced correctly, and Jason Richardson. So I met all three of those down at the uh, railway hotel building during the week. 
And so they stay there for six days, five nights. So they stay in the actual building. They take inspiration from what's around them. They do whatever their artwork is. And so one of the artists, for example, to give you an idea, was an artist that focused more on audiovisual. And he was fascinated by some of the bird noises that he was hearing around the area around Stuart Town, around the railway hotel building. And so he wrote a song that was focused on the songbirds around him and incorporated some of the music, some of the singing from the songbirds into his song. And it was quite fascinating. Keep in mind, they'd only been there for six days, five nights, so they hadn't been there for long. And then coming up with some of the artwork, there were other artworks I looked at there as well. This is an ongoing process where people apply. They only do it over certain periods of the year. People apply, they come in, they spend time in there and then produce some artworks while they're there. But typically they'll also leave some sort of legacy project. And I can imagine if you fast forward 10 or 20 years, you'll have a range of artworks that will be on display in the railway hotel building that these various groups or individuals have created over that time in residency. So I think it's an absolutely fantastic concept. And I think it also helps put Stuart Town on the map. Artists across the nation, I'm sure, would talk about the fact that they might have spent time in Stuart Town. They might have spent time doing something. So this is called the Ironbark Arts Residency. Of course, Stuart Town was originally called Ironbark. It was renamed Stuart Town. It was named from Ironbark to Stuart Town in 1879. It was renamed after Sir Alexander Stewart, who was the Premier of New South Wales from 1883 to 1885. Now, there is some debate about that too, whether it was originally called Iron Bark or Iron Barks. I don't know the exact answer. I normally refer to it as Iron Bark, mainly because the Benjo Patterson poem refers to the man from Iron Bark rather than the man from Iron Barks. But then maybe that was the case because it's much easier to rhyme with iron bark than it is to rhyme with iron barks. So it is a great little place. Population maybe of 500 people or thereabouts. Worthwhile when you're driving to Sydney sometime to go the back way, to go the Burundong way rather than the main Mitchell Highway and stop in at the railway hotel there in Iron Bark or sorry, in Stuart Town and have a look at the railway hotel and just have a look at Stuart Town itself. During the week, we launched the new Dubbo Visitor Guide. Now, this is a fantastic document. Typically, this document is current for about 18 months. It's a huge project to put this document together. Now, I've got to thank, for a start, the 107 local partners who are basically the sponsors who pay for this guide and pay for the marketing of this and some of the marketing around Dubbo. So this is at zero cost to council, zero cost to the ratepayers of Dubbo, which I think is incredibly important. The partners, the businesses in this guide typically were the, are the ones who benefit more out of this guide. So it seems fair and reasonable that they're paying for it. But we did receive great support from the businesses in the area in terms of putting some advertising in this particular document, as I said, 107 of those. Now, we'll print 150,000 of these documents. It'll go out to 160 or so visitor information centres through Queensland, New South Wales, ACT and Victoria. But more importantly, it will go out to every household in the Dubbo Regional Council LGA. And I think that's very important. The visiting friends and relatives market is a big part of our tourism market here in Dubbo. So people come along and visit 
you've got family members who live in Dubbo, you've got friends, I'll come out and visit you, I'll stay for a weekend. So you turn up and then you want to work out what to do. Having that visitor guide in your household is a great tool for you to be able to say, let's have a look, what can we do? What things have been added on since last time I was here? What new facilities are there? What things we go and see? One of the real challenges for Dubbo is to keep people in Dubbo for longer. So when we get tourists come along, we want to keep them here for longer. Now, in general, we're recovering from COVID quite well. When you look at the latest Tourism Research Australia report, uh, it goes to June 2023, and it's got comparisons of various things. But when you look at that, you've got a 54% increase in domestic overnight trip visitors, and that's over a 12-month period comparing the previous 12-month period, a 104% increase in domestic day trip visitors, and expenditure has increased by 30% over that same time frame. So it is big business for Dubbo, 1.259 million visitors we had over the last year and injected about $380 million into our economy. So all of these figures are great. The one thing that I want to see is improve, and it has improved since I became mayor at the very beginning back in 2011. I remember talking about this number, and this number's improved. And this is the easiest way for us to increase the amount of money we generate from tourism. The average night stay for visitors to Dubbo is 2.2. Now, if we can increase that number to 2.5 or maybe even 3, that would increase the injection into our economy quite significantly. These people are already coming to Dubbo, so we've already captured them to a certain extent. And just like a business often talks about it's easier to sell to existing customers than to get new customers, it's the same here. Once we've got some of these people to visit Dubbo, keeping them here for longer is easier than trying to attract new people to Dubbo. And we've got new tourism offerings. We've got the Royal Flying Doctor Visitor Experience Centre, so that's a fantastic facility that adds time that people will stay in Dubbo, more dwell time for people. Even the old Jar, which has been around for a long time, that's got better attractions now. They've got better exhibits inside there. So again, that will keep people in Dubbo for longer. Of course, our zoo is our centrepiece and they keep adding to the attractions there. People definitely stay longer to spend time in the zoo. It's a two-day pass you get with the zoo. So spending two days looking at the zoo, it's quite easy to do that. So all of these different offerings are fantastic. But that visitor guide, expect to see that delivered to your mailbox soon. And again, look through it, see what we've got on offer. You might be surprised at what's on offer. And even simple things, the inmates program we've got at the old Dubbo Jail. For people in Dubbo, anyone that lives in the Dubbo Regional Council LGA, you've just got to show at the old Dubbo Jail that you live in our, our area, our local government area, and you get free entry to the jail. That was something we introduced many years ago, I'd probably say eight or nine, maybe even 10 years ago. And the idea there was that when you've got locals living here and they've got friends or family that come and visit it's a bit unfair on them if they take them to the jail to keep charging them each time and if a local's seen the jail once they probably aren't going to go back on a regular basis so we introduced the idea back in the old Dubbo City Council days of saying well you can go in for free we don't have a lot of people from Dubbo that were going and visiting the jail so it's not a huge loss of income but we think you're more likely to take some friends along if you've got free entry yourself so you can go along multiple times if you have friends come on multiple occasions different friends different family members you can go along to the jail and not have to pay each time you go or you can just go and have a look at the latest exhibits there and have a look around so that's called our inmates program and again free entry for anyone in the Dubbo Regional Council LGA the Wellington Caves has something similar it's called mates rates 
there is a cost and there are limited tools there. So we give you a 50% discount if you're a local rather than free entry. But again, that's attractive. And if you want to take some friends along and have a look through there, then at least you get a discount on that. So keep an eye for that visitor guide. Bring along family, friends, relatives. Keep them here for longer if you can. It will add to our economy dramatically if we can just extend those 2.2 nights up to a large number. Uh, But again, thank you to all those 107 businesses who are supporting the visitor guide, but supporting the Dubbo Regional Council LGA in general. Now, not on the back of the Dubbo Visitor Guide launch, but as a coincidence, I also had a phone call from the, the Sunday Telegraph. So if you're listening to this today or during the week, go and have a look at the Sunday Telegraph, because I, got, I received a phone call from a journo there who specifically wanted to know about our tourism numbers and how our tourism numbers were so strong and how we kept them going so strong. And of course, the first question I said was, this is obviously on the back of the launch of our Dubbo Visitor Guide, but the journo wasn't aware of that. They'd just been doing some research and had noticed how strong Dubbo's tourism numbers were. And I talked about some of those offerings and talked about some of the things that we do in general to try and keep visitors coming along. But I think it was good that it stood out in some of the research that this journal was doing about our strong visitor numbers. And of course, there'll be a story in the Sunday Telegraph, and I haven't read that article yet, but all they can do when people read an article about strong tourism in an area, then that piques the interest of people and people will say, well, if lots of people are visiting there, then maybe I should as well. So that can only help with our tourism numbers increasing from there. So always good to get some publicity around that sort of tourism. And we had a workshop during the week and as regular listeners of the podcast will realise, workshops aren't a place where council decisions are made. Often information that happens at a workshop will feed up through to committees or straight to council and the council resolution is what matters and that's what council staff must follow. So we could say do all sorts of wonderful things at a workshop but staff would and they should not go and take action on those because it's not a council resolution. Now the workshop we had this week was all about a review that we've been doing and I've talked about this before about our financial sustainability and that looks at our long-term finances and how we're positioned and what we might do to make sure we are sustainable into the future. It is a term that I hear talked about with local government circles on a regular basis. Almost anyone you talk to around local government at the moment, it is a big issue about sustainability, about long-term sustainability, about financial sustainability. And one of the things that we certainly talked about there is the concept, the possibility of a special rate variation. Now, when you don't have enough finances, you've got a few options. One, you can put the rates up. There's a process to go through to do that to basically bridge that gap between expenditure and income. The second thing you can do, of course, is you can reduce services. You can reduce what we might do. And we've already done a little bit of that. We've reduced how often we might mow certain areas, for example, so you can cut back on some of the services that you offer. The third thing you can do is really have a good, hard look at all of your expenditure across an organisation and what you're doing with certain parts of that. And one of the things that we certainly have to look at in that process is some of our expenditure in some of our businesses. And that seems a bit silly to say expenditure in businesses. Normally, you've got a business to generate income. But we've got some businesses, and I use that term in inverted commas, that are loss-making businesses and they're providing a service. So our three swimming pools across the LGA, they lose us money. And I will make mention of something happening there in a moment. But 
the other things we've got the example the child care centre so we own a child care centre but we lose in the vicinity of $400,000 a year on that particular centre we've got a caravan park which we do have leased out at the moment but in the past we've actually made some money on a caravan park but really not a lot of money we could probably make more or maybe we'd be better off leasing that out which we're doing at the moment or disposing of these assets and this is the, the big decision you've got things like the livestock markets the childcare centre you've got other business assets of council and you've really got to work out what your core focus is on council and if some of these assets are losing money or not generating as much money as they should is that then an extra burden on ratepayers so if we get to that point of looking at a special rate variation a rate rise above CPI for example if we get to the point of looking at that then you really have to say are we better off removing some of these assets selling off some of these assets leasing them out whatever it might be or are we better off putting up the rates? And that's a conversation that we'll have with the community going forward. At this stage, it was really just to get a state of the situation to see how we sit. And that was a, a good detailed discussion. We've got consultants in having a very hard look at all of our finance at the moment. And these sort of workshops are the way to flesh out some of that in the, the big picture and then start to drill down a bit more detail. We'll have a lot more to say about this as we go forward. Now, during the week, the Honourable Penny Sharp, MLC, Minister for Climate Change, Minister for Energy, Minister for the Environment and Minister for Heritage, was in Dubbo. And there's a group called Steerco, which is a group of three councils that's got Midwestern Regional Council, Warren Bungleshire Council and Dubbo Regional Council, as well as Energy Co on it. And they meet on a regular basis. I'm not part of that. It's very much an operational side. So you've got the jams of those three councils, for example, not the mayors. And they look at the various things that we are doing for our renewable energy zone and how we can take full advantage of it. And people have heard me say that a lot. Let's see how we can take full advantage of that. And so the minister was very keen to come along and sit in on that meeting, not so much on the meeting, but just have a discussion with that particular group. And the mayors were invited along, so myself and Ambrose from Moorumungleshire Council there, the Mayor of Midwestern Regional Council couldn't make it unfortunately, but just a discussion, and that was a fantastic discussion, just for the Minister to get an update on a whole range of things, because it's exciting, the Renewable Energy Zone, and exciting about what it will generate for this particular region, and we're the first, so there are five residents across the state, we're the first, the Minister is very keen to make sure it's done right here, so the other ones can follow on, so we'll blaze a trail and then the other residents will follow along in the area or the path that we've created there. And there are challenges there. Housing is definitely a challenge. We're going to have a lot of extra people. And there's different reports that have been done already on what that number might be. It might be 6,000, for example, in the Dubbo Regional Council LGA. It might be a few thousand in the other LGAs. It could be 10,000 across all three LGAs. We need to have somewhere for these people to live and we'd love to see some of those people stay permanently after this construction work is finished. And the construction work will take a lot longer than people think. I think we'll see construction in this res of renewable energy projects for maybe the next 15 years. So you do have mines sometimes that have a life of maybe 15 or 20 years. So it's not dissimilar to a short life mine. But you might get some other people that stay in this region for a range of reasons in terms of related to the renewable energy zone or just realise that this area is a fantastic place to live. So that was fantastic for the Minister to get an update on a whole range of little processes and projects that are going there and a good meeting there. But the other thing that was exciting about that 
was that the minister was also in town to make an announcement. And when people talk about the idea that we've got this renewable energy zone and what's it mean for the region, the various proponents that are building these, and there are 37 projects we're talking about, which is a number I've mentioned before on this podcast, 37 projects, those various proponents will have people working, there'll be people living here, there'll be money injected into the economy, and they'll be have some sort of community benefit scheme hopefully, out of that, and Energy Co themselves, who are building the transmission lines, there'll be some sort of money coming back to the community. But that's in the future. And the minister was keen to make sure that we're getting some benefits in the short term. So after we finished that meeting, the minister told us that she was about to go make an announcement, and we were told briefly what it was. It was confidential for the next 10 minutes until the announcement was made, but obviously it's a public process now. She announced $128 million for this res over the next four years to deliver community projects and employment opportunities. And she talked about the fact this is a down payment to bring forward community and employment benefits because we want to see some of these benefits flow before the construction of the new transmission lines, for example, and some of these renewable generation projects commences. And it's probably late 2024, maybe 2025, before some of these things really happen. So this makes a lot of sense. Now, I don't know the exact details. I've read the media release, and it did talk about the money could be used to fund projects that, for example, were public infrastructure upgrades, housing accommodation, training and employment programs, health and education programs, support for energy efficiency, local rooftop solar, and initiatives for First Nations people. So there's a whole range of things in there. Can this be used to help some of our roads and, say, the bridge out at the Kumabella Crossing, for example, uh, Saxa Road, some of these areas we've talked about? I can't see why not, but again, I don't know the exact information, the exact details of this yet. The announcement was only made on Friday this week. But that makes sense to me that it could be used for some of these things. And again, People want to see some of these benefits on the ground in the short term. So it's a sensible thing from the government and also very exciting for us. People talk about the res and how that will benefit us. Well, here's a direct benefit we'll see in dollars that will start being spent in this region in the short term. So good announcement. Very exciting. I look forward to seeing more of the detail around this and seeing the money hit the ground. That'll be the really exciting part. Now, on Friday night, the Dubbo Business Chamber held the 27th Rhino Awards, and that's a pretty big deal for the businesses in Dubbo. Now, I don't know anyone that starts out in business saying, gee, I'm going to start a business because I want to win a Rhino Award. People start out in business typically because they want to do great work, they want to deliver services to customers, they've got a passion for something, and then if they do that job really well, then sure, they're might be an award somewhere, but it's not the focus of businesses, certainly business people that I know. It's not their focus. Now, there were 20 awards given out on the night, including the Gold Rhino, including the Jean Amel Sericia Award. So congratulations to all of those businesses that won those awards, but also being a finalist, that's a fantastic achievement, being a finalist in those awards, even entering. There were 97 entries this year. So even entering the awards gives you a chance to have a little bit of a look at your business when you do that. Mark Beretta from Sunrise was the MC, and again, it's good to see that star power there. The Rhinos typically do have some great entertainment, great people there. Jelly Bean Jam was the band that was playing. They did a fantastic job. So congratulations to Dubbo Business Chamber. I think they do do a great job. And 
our business community. You don't have to see the businesses there, some of the exceptional businesses, talk to some of those businesses there on the night. It was certainly something, I think anyway, that really gives a true reflection or a great reflection on the great business community we've got here in Dubbo. On Saturday night, I was at the Holland Open Garden and Memory Makers Art Prize. This is the third of these events. Lorraine Holland is very generous and opens up her garden, which is a beautiful garden, to people to come along. And there are a number of artworks on display. They give out three $1,000 prizes for the three different categories they've got for those artworks. They've got a $250 prize for the People's Choice and another $250 prize for the Packers Prize. And so, again, people enter artworks. It's great to see those artworks. People pay money to come along and be a part of it, all raising money for dementia. And we do have a very good community in Dubbo looking after people with dementia. We've, of course, got our dementia choir. We've got an auxiliary committee. So there are some people in Dubbo who do some fantastic work looking after people less fortunate in our society. So I think that was a a great event. Uh, Laura Dunkley is very involved. Lorraine's daughter is very involved in that as well in organising that. And a lot of people were there. A lot of people were there very generous in what they were doing in terms of contributing to a raffle, uh, buying some of the artworks there, and some of that has to go as commission to the fundraising as well. So... A great concept and just something that was seemingly fairly simple for raising money. And Lorraine lost her husband who had dementia a couple of years ago and so wanted to do something to put back or give back to the community around that. And so that's what makes Dubbo so great. You've got people who just get in and make things happen. So congratulations to Lorraine, congratulations to Laura, and well done turning something that was very sad out of the the loss of your husband and father, turning something very sad into something that's very positive for our community. So whether it be in personal life, in business, maybe in sport, but absolutely, as the mayor of a wonderful local government area, you've always got to be in the lookout for opportunities. Now, what do those opportunities look like? I don't know. You just keep an eye out for them. You have discussions with people. You keep your ear to the ground and see what opportunities might pop up. And I was in the car during the week, just had the radio on, going from one meeting to the next, and it happened to be the news that came on. And I heard a story in the news that was disappointing, but also a little bit intriguing. There's a story about Golgong, and Golgong had a an exhibit that was proposed and had been given funding approval by the state government, several million dollars, I think it was $3 million. The Midwestern Regional Council had contributed a million dollars towards it. They might have been on the lookout for some more money from the federal government to even make it a bigger exhibit, but basically it was a whole world of fossils. There was a gentleman by the name of Michael Durant who was going to donate, it sounded like, 15,000 or thereabouts fossils that he'd created over his lifetime and they were going to be put into this exhibit in Red Hill in Golgong. Now it had gone through council, moved unanimously it sounded like, council was very much in favour of it, everything had been done from that perspective and it sounded like there was an online trolling campaign to basically make this not happen and sound like a small group in Golgong weren't happy with this process for whatever reason, I'm not sure. And I thought there's got to be more to the story than what I've heard here on the news because the news, you've only got a minute or two to actually encapsulate everything that's happened there. So I spoke to 
Midwestern Regional Council. I, I thought the only way to find out exactly what happened here was to speak to the council. And they certainly told me a little bit about what went on. And I actually got sent a snapshot from a social media post from someone involved with this process who was disappointed about it. And I'll read a bit of that in a moment. But the process there was this whole thing had been derailed by a, a small group of people who had really trolled both council, councillors, and the person, Michael Durant, who was donating all of these items to Golgong, which sounded pretty disappointing, to the point where the project fell over. And so in talking to my Midwestern Regional Council, I said, well, it seems a shame that this is lost to the region. Do you think there's an opportunity here for the Regional Council? And absolutely, there was contact made with Michael. Within minutes, I had a phone call from Michael Durant. And he was very excited to talk about it and told me a lot more of the story that happened in Golgong, which I won't go into detail from Michael's recollection. That was a private conversation, but talked about that process. But I think there is a huge opportunity there for Wellington Caves to add to what they've got down there because the fossils that Michael's created over his lifetime, really, literally, would absolutely add to what we've got there in Wellington. And many years ago, he did have an exhibition in Wellington for a short period of time, but he's created many more items since that particular exhibit. So it it might actually end up being okay for Dubbo, but it's certainly disappointing. I'd be disappointed if I was a a Golgong resident, and certainly it seems like most members of the council, Midwest Region Council, are very disappointed. And I want to read you a little bit here, and I won't say the person's name, but it's certainly someone involved in council, in Midwest Regional Council, And this is a public post, so I'm not breaching any confidentiality here. This was a a post that was put on social media to talk a little bit about this process and how disappointed this particular person was. So I'll I'll read some parts of this. I won't read the whole thing. You can go and search for it and find it if you need to. But I'll read some parts of this because it gives you an idea of how maybe democracy is being twisted a little bit by some of the power of online social media and how people choose to use that tool maybe for their own personal advantage rather than the greater good of a community. I'll go through, and again, these aren't my words. These are the words of someone who posted this on social media. You can go and search it if you like. I'm getting a lot of questions regarding the demise of the Golgong Natural History Museum. So I'm going to do my best to sum it all up. As someone that has lived in Golgong my entire life and has dedicated over a decade of my life to representing the region, the loss of this opportunity is inexplicably infuriating. Golgong has lost a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and so too has the entire region. This is an historic moment for our town, but for all the wrong reasons. A small number of members of our community will see this as a win, and they're entitled to but the demise of the museum isn't the result of a democratic process. It's the result of an entirely disgraceful and relentless attack on some individuals by members of our community who just didn't want the project to go ahead. I've watched grown adults, some of whom I used to hold in high regard, conduct themselves in a manner that even my young children wouldn't even dream of. At first, the discussions were respectful, as they should have been, But as time progressed, those respectful conversations turned vitriolic and shameful. Wild and unsubstantiated accusations were made against councillors and council staff 
And as council moved to deliver the project for the community, the fighting got dirtier. Personal attacks, claims of corruption, and some shameful attacks on council staff by groups when the staff were by themselves. They said council should never have proceeded with the project without consulting them first, because of all the members of the community, they were the only ones who knew enough about it. So we took their feedback on board and discussed it at length, and while some of the concerns were valid, they weren't, in the opinion of councillors, enough to stop the project. Some of them claimed that we shouldn't have asked children what they thought because they weren't able to make good decisions, despite many of them being the ones that would have benefited greatly from the facility. They called for more community consultation, and when they got the results of it, they rejected the findings anyway. They said we'd stack the results. We'd stage it all as part of some conspiracy to push ahead with a project that should never have gotten off the ground, or that councillors were somehow benefiting from the project personally. How this was even a rational thought in the mind of some of these people astounds me. At one stage, I had a number of adults privately messaging me on Facebook at all sorts of hours of the day, demanding immediate answers to their questions about the project. Most of those messages were rude and obnoxious, and so I chose to not even continue replying. Some of them I blocked, and I will continue to do so because my election to office doesn't obligate me to accept being disrespected. The same goes for every other councillor. The multi-million dollar project would have provided permanent staffing to the entire Red Hill precinct. It wouldn't have been reliant on the good hearts of the volunteers that certainly keep it running, and it would have, been, would have driven tourism for the entire region. It would have driven significant economic growth for our town. It would have been a facility like no other, and people that travelled to visit it would have taken the time to enjoy all of the other incredible things our town has to offer. You see, democracy works when we respect the wishes of the majority. You don't get to demand a democratic process and then reject it. And you especially don't get to demand a democratic process and then bully and humiliate individuals because it didn't deliver the outcome that you wanted. What happened as a result of this shameful behaviour has cost Golgong and the Midwestern region an absolute gem. And I have never felt so ashamed of a group of adults in my entire time. To believe this is a win for our community is to believe that it's okay to belittle, bully, harass and humiliate others because you didn't get your own way. And that, in my opinion, is an absolute disgrace. It's okay to disagree with political decisions, but it's never okay to attack people who are legitimately trying to do the right thing. For anyone that thinks that's acceptable, you can hang your heads in shame. An opportunity like this will be lucky to present itself again in my lifetime, and I sure hope that if it does, the community can deal with it respectfully. What I've witnessed is beyond words. So that's certainly disappointing for Golgong, and some of the bits there that I see, I certainly agree with the comments from that particular person that democracy can be disrespected by people who don't get their own way. And one of the very tough things as the mayor of a council, or even as a councillor, is a decision is made and you debate that decision and you put your points forward to the extent that is fair and reasonable and, and put your views forward. But ultimately, once the decision's made, then you have to accept that and move on. And as, as the mayor, I sometimes vote against decisions and the decision goes the other way and five minutes later I've got to speak in favour of that decision. That's democracy. I respect that. It would be great to see people respecting it everywhere.
as I said, sometimes the loss in one particular area is a gain for somewhere else. And this may be a great gain for Wellington Caves. Michael Durant, who has been certainly hurt by this whole process, has been very keen to do something in Wellington. And again, it's early days at the moment, but we've had several conversations already and we'll see where this develops. I want to talk a little bit about our swimming pools across the region. If we go back briefly to visit history, Dubbo, for example, was always contracted out for as many years as I can remember being on council. It was contracted out to an external contractor and the pool ran under that model. When the amalgamation occurred, it was still being contracted out. Wellington and Geary operate under slightly different models. But ultimately, the last council made a decision to bring it back in-house and run it with our staff. And that presents a couple of problems. The first problem that seems obvious there is that you've got staff that are needed for approximately six months of the year. The pool isn't open 12 months of the year. Uh, all three pools aren't open 12 months of the year. So you've got a process where you've got to employ casuals or you've got to employ full-time staff that then you've got to find some other work for for the other six months of the year. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is that when you employ staff from council – regardless of where they're working, what area they're working, what industry they're working in under council's umbrella, they've got to come under the council award. So, for example, our staff at our childcare centre, our staff at the pool, any of our staff at all are all being paid the local government award. Now, the local government award is not that flexible when it comes to something that operates seven days a week like the swimming pool. So ultimately, it meant that we were paying out higher wages than if it had been an external contractor. We had some issues getting enough staff. We had to pay a fair bit of overtime to keep the pool open because we didn't have enough staff. And this is a problem that I see in just about every business. When I speak to businesses, like on Friday night when I spoke to many businesses at the Rhino Awards, everyone kept talking about the fact that Dubbo's booming, Dubbo's economy is very strong, but that means that we don't have enough staff. And our unemployment rate is typically 1% or even more better than the state average. That means we probably don't have enough people there, which is one of the, the problems we've got, one of the good problems we've got to try and get more people to come to Dubbo. So all of that, when we looked at all that, we went out through a process, a, a open, transparent process, and made a decision that we would go external. We put out expressions of interest for that. We considered all those that came in in a confidential meeting because there were monies, prices involved in that, and we awarded the contract to Belgravia Leisure, who have got a great reputation and manage pools across various parts of Australia and New Zealand. So they've got experience in that, and they obviously have knowledge on how they might even do a better job running that. Now, that's been a short amount of time it's been operating, and it's fair to say it hasn't gone perfectly smoothly yet. And there's been a, a few issues, and I've had a couple of people from the community who have raised these issues with me, and I appreciate people coming forward with those issues and asking about those, and so I've been able to take those up and find out what's going on with those. And so some of them are issues that, well, council would be presented with if council still had the pool. So, for example, there was a, an issue with the heater that heats the water, and so there were about three days that it was below the 26 degrees that we like to run it at. There will need to be some repairs done to that. That's nothing to do with Belgravia Leisure. That's nothing to do with whether it was internal or external. Last year, in fact, when it was managed by council, there was a failure of that piece of equipment, and that was repaired. It's a piece of equipment. Re failures can happen and repairs need to be undertaken. So that one there, 
is unfortunate, but failures happen. There were also some issues around staffing. Now, this is probably the main problem that we have at the moment, or Belgravia has, getting enough staff. Now, they've started afresh. They've got to get those staff. Staff, obviously, were employed by council last year, but most of those were casuals, so they weren't guaranteed employment the next year. We certainly let any of those staff know that someone else would be coming along, Belgravia Leisure would be coming along. And I've seen people say that the reason they haven't got enough staff is because they're paying the industry award, whereas council was paying higher wages before. But I don't think that's really applicable because there are so many businesses in Dubbo who are screaming out for more staff. Talk to hospitality businesses, they're saying they can't get enough staff. So I don't know that's the exact problem. One of the advantages of Belgravia is they've got other sites and they can bring in staff from other areas, which they have been doing to try and make sure we've got it open. I actually went down there a couple of days ago just to walk around, not as the mayor. I was out of uniform, out of my suit, and I just went down there, paid my money to walk in and just walked around, had a look, felt the pool temperature, talked to various patrons there just to get an idea of it. And it certainly did seem understaffed. There's no doubt about that at all. There was one person at the front counter who was doing the job of selling kiosk products, drinks, chips, that type of thing, and letting people in. So there was a bit of a line-up there. There were the mandatory lifeguards. There were two lifeguards on, one for the kids' pool and one for the main pool. The splash pad was in operation. That was running there. Uh, The slide wasn't going. And again, that was part of that staffing problem. It's probably a bit harsh on Belgravia to say that it's all terrible and it's all a debacle and it needs to be fixed. It needs to be fixed, definitely. They're going through that recruitment process. I've got confidence that they'll satisfy what they need to do there because it's hurting them when they haven't got the kiosk running to full capacity, when they haven't got the slide running to full capacity. There's no advantage for them. Some people think that because they get paid money by council, well, it's in their best interest to reduce their staffing. But as with any business, if you reduce your staffing to the point where you're not generating the income you need to generate, then there's no real advantage for you there. So I would say to users of the pool, please bear with them, be patient, have respectful conversations, communications with them. If you've got some issues you want to raise, send an email to me, send an email to council. I'm happy for people to send emails to me, mayor at dubbo.nsw.gov.au. And I've had a couple of people do that, and I thank them for that, because if we don't know about the problems, we can't raise those issues. So that's a good way to do it. A bit like the situation with Golgong, venting on social media probably isn't going to get the problem solved. I know personally, I literally do not have the time, the number of hours in the day to read every social media site, to read every time my name is tagged in something. I just, I struggle to get enough time in the day to do all the, my normal duties as the mayor and to have all the normal meetings I have as mayor and then try and do my own social media and then try and catch up with everything else. It's just impossible. And I say to people all the time, if you want me to take action on something, send me an email or make a phone call to me. If you want to vent, then sure, go to social media, but that probably won't get the problem solved. And the same with Belgravia, the same with our pools. If you want the problem solved, contact a councillor, contact council, have those discussions there. That's a better way to get those problems solved. I have problem. I have confidence that these problems will be solved and it's a short-term blip and I, I think a, an initial process where it really is just in terms of getting set up, any organisation getting set up and, and initial teething problems, if you like, I think these problems will be solved. So please bear with Belgravia, but keep having those respectful conversations with them. And if you're not getting anywhere, certainly have those respectful conversations with myself or with council staff. 
Now time for Limerick of the Week. Now I don't have Mark here to judge my Limerick of the Week unfortunately, uh, but hopefully he'll listen to that and then he'll give me some feedback on how the Limerick has gone this week. The Rhinos, it was too hard for me to pass up the opportunity to talk about the Rhinos and my Limerick. I think the Rhinos are an absolute highlight of the annual calendar, so why not make them a highlight of the podcast for this week? Dubbo's Rhinos are second to none. A gathering that's always great fun. With winners so grand, they all take a stand as their hard work is publicly spun. So hopefully Mark enjoyed that limerick. Now again, solo this week, give me some feedback. Tell me whether you enjoyed it this week or you can't wait for Mark to come back. Send an email, mayor at dubbo.nsw.gov.au. Always like to hear feedback from the community. Always like to hear what's going on. But that gives you an update for this week. I enjoy talking about the various aspects of the community and what's happening in the community. So hopefully that gives you an update and a snapshot of what's happened in the last week. Talk to you again next week. Straight from the Mayor's Mouth with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council.